0: what got you there with Laney
1: uh, What got you there? with got you, got you? You wake up each day, and the only thing that matters is the next one. And if you don't feel that way, you're on the other side of the thin line that that delineates between losers and winners. And and I have always felt like coaches have had such great impact on my life. All I want to do. Um, Other than my family, all I want to do is continue to hopefully positively impact these young men so that they make more of themselves than maybe they would have had they not been a part of my life.
2: Bill Tierney is the head men's lacrosse coach at the University of Denver and one of collegiate lacrosse's legendary coaches. In 2015, Tierney was named USILA Division I National Coach of the Year while capturing his NCAA record 7th national championship, becoming the first coach to win national championships in charge of two different programs. In his 36 years of coaching, Tierney has a master resume that includes seven NCAA championships, nine NCAA final appearances, 15 championship weekend appearances, 23 quarterfinal appearances, and 14 Ivy League championships. There are few coaches in the world who have a more impressive resume, and on this episode, Coach Tierney shares his coaching lessons, how to develop talent, and why adaptability and taking on new challenges is one of the most important life skills.
0: Hey, it's Sean. And before we get started on this week's episode, I wanted to share what I've been working on behind the scenes for the past few months. And that's my new technology job hiring startup called Culture Finders. Culture Finders is here to save the millions of people from working in jobs they hate and dread going to every day. If you've ever been in a job you can't stand or hired someone who looked great on their resume, but turned out not to be great and destructive to your company's culture, then listen up because Culture Finders is for you. Culture Finders is a technology-backed talent matching service that connects job seekers with employers based on optimal culture matching so both parties can seamlessly merge together. When you create a profile, you'll receive your Culture Connection score and get matched with your dream company based on maximal compatibility and shared interest. To create your profile, all you have to do is play our fun brain games, uncover your unique personality profile, and answer a few questions. That's it. You're just a few clicks away from connecting to the opportunity that's been waiting for you. If you're a job seeker looking for that dream job or run a company who wants to save the headache of bad hires, head to culturefinders.com to get set up with your Culture Connection score today. That's culturefinders.com. For all the coffee lovers out there, listen up. I'm crazy about the coffee I fuel my body with, and that's why I'm always grabbing a bottle of super coffee from key to life Super Coffee has something to satisfy every coffee drinker's needs. Check out their brand new pods for the quick pick me up that are filled with vitamins and antioxidants. Before every podcast, I fill up on their Super Espresso, and my wife and I are borderline obsessed with their plant based coconut mocha super coffee cold brew, which has 10 grams of protein, no added sugar, and is keto friendly. I love the coffee and the three brothers so much that started this company. That's why I became an early investor. There's a reason they just got ranked number 18 on Inc. 5000's fastest growing companies. So if you want to check out what they've got going on, head to drinksupercoffee.com and see what everyone's talking about. Coach Tierney, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Doing great,
1: Sean. Thanks so,
0: so much for having me on. It's a true honor. Uh, as you know, the just the amount of respect I have for you, I, I know you're humble, but I, I do think you're the, the greatest lacrosse coach of all time. So this is just an absolute honor for me. But I thought a really fun place to start would be around a quote your son Trevor said, and Trevor, obviously legendary goalie for some of your national championships team. And this was after the 2001 overtime win against Syracuse. And Trevor said he makes life so miserable in practice that the games are fun. And we know there will never be as much pressure in a game as there is in practice. And I would love to just hear your thoughts on that quote by him.
1: Yeah, it's funny. Just uh, on that quote, as, as you know, it's, uh, you know, when you get to these final fours, and I've been so blessed in my career, and, and certainly the the highlight of that career has been uh, that 2001 championship when Trevor and Brendan were both playing for us at Princeton. And so uh, we have been beaten pretty well by Syracuse during the year. And uh <clears throat> just came into that had a great semifinal against Hopkins and then, uh, you know, got into that and it was interesting because Trevor played a great game probably would have been the MVP had we not given a uh, back then, as you remember, yeah, when you were, it had a one goal lead, you had to keep the ball in your offensive box in the last two minutes of the game. And, um, Trevor made a save and pitched it out to one of our short sticks and for some unknown reason I mean this kid was a four year starter just a great kid. He just ran through the corner of the box which turned it over to Syracuse and of course they had Michael Powell at the time. So Michael scores a goal with 19 seconds left to tie it up and then um and then uh bj prager scores the winner winning winner in overtime so um you know so when you get to that point you know you're up at a dais it's it's the highlight of of being a lacrosse coach and a lacrosse player you're at this final four and there's you know probably a hundred news reporters and media people and and they get to fire all questions at you and when you win and i've been on both sides so i understand when you win it kind of doesn't matter what they ask you. You, you, You'll say, you'll answer anything. And so one of the reporters said uh, um, to Trevor, you know, you usually bring a couple of players. And one of the reporters said to Trevor, uh, Trevor, how is it that you guys always seem to come up big in these, in these tight games? And that's when he, and he looked down at me. It was kind of funny. He was at one end and I was at the other. And he looked down at me and he goes, can I tell him? And, uh, you know, going back to that, 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 feeling of, I don't care what you say today. Uh, you know, I said, yeah, <laughs> yeah, tell him whatever you want. And that's when he said that, you know, I make life pretty miserable for the guys during the week. And so the games seem a little bit easier, but uh, it's kind of a quote that I, I've always kept in the back of my mind as uh, as, you know, sometimes as you get a little older, you start to think, you know, maybe you know, maybe there's a chance I can go to heaven if I start redeeming myself for all those bad sins, you know, and, uh, and, and being somewhat abusive to my own sons and their teammates. Uh, um, uh, so sometimes when I start thinking, yeah, you know, you got to lighten up a little bit. Kids are different. Um, I go back to that quote and go, you know, it's, it's our job to challenge young men and bring them to the highest level they can possibly achieve.
0: Yeah, I had the pleasure of working with your son, Brendan, uh, at Nike for a few years, and some of the stories he shared with me for <laughs> some of the uh, the great comments coming out of Coach Tierney's mouth, uh, it's pretty humorous. Uh, I am wondering, though, about that pressure, and I'm I'm always intrigued about that balance be- behind adding too much pressure to an environment and, and not having enough there to get the most out of your players. How did How did you battle that throughout your career?
1: Yeah, I I, th- I think the key, one of the keys is as a coach and, and probably as a leader in a business and, and all that stuff is to make sure you're absorbing more pressure than the people who work for you or your players because you, there's so many of them. Um you don't they're fragile right now. I'm dealing with eighteen to twenty-two year young two eighteen to twenty-two year old young men that have so many things going on in their lives right now. Um social media is is uh you know as destructive a thing as you can get you know besides war you know it's it's just uh uh, it's fun the kids enjoy it but it can be it can be tough on young people and uh you know and i think in this time of uh of the covid and and certainly the the financial crises that we're all going through the the universities um, the decisions about athletics and and then and then the, you throw into the fact that most of these young people have never really experienced a uh, failure because every time they've failed at something, even when they were ten years old in Little League baseball, it was the umpire's fault or it was the other <laughs> coach's fault or his coach's fault and and so I think it's really important to to get them to understand pressure and get them to to you know, I mean, to understand how losing builds you and and, and small failures can make you stronger. Uh, as I told my team yesterday, we're we're just starting into somewhat uh, of lacrosse-looking practices because before this, we were working in 10-man cohorts. And, you know, you've played the game long enough with 10 people on a field. There's not a heck of a lot you can do. So, um, and so now we're into it and, and trying to explain to 15 freshmen that, kind of watch the older guys and, and go, whoa, you know, those guys are really good. And, you know, uh, is to get them to understand it, and, you know, it, no matter whether it's a loss and then a win or a, a sickness or an injury and then health or whatever it might be, or a bad day to a good day, that the idea is to understand it's, it's always one step back, two steps forward if you if you really work hard. And eventually you get to the end of that journey or you achieve what you want to achieve, so I do think putting pressure on young people, maybe in ways that um, they don't even realize it's pressure, or they they might even feel it um, with things like uh, keeping score in drills, uh, cert- getting something done in a certain amount of time. You know, yesterday we made them we made them run a half mile and they had to finish it in two and a half minutes, and not everybody can do that, but but putting that pressure on them to. Um, make sure you made it so the other guys don't have to run more. Is that's that's a unique little set of pressures. That's because we all know, Sean. You played enough sports and lacrosse. That scoreboard is foreboding. You know, you you can play the greatest game in your life, you know, and and you can walk off the field and maybe have three or four goals. But if your team loses, you feel like the, it's the end of the world. And and so, I think, um, you know, trying to put those little pressures on and then. And then trying to reward little, little steps forward is just a way to kind of make it a a yin and yang kind of step up the up the ladder and and hope that they can get there.
0: What happened to the uh, the guys who didn't make the the half mile in two and a half minutes yesterday?
1: Well, I, I slowed the clock down a little bit for one of our for one of our goalies because I because he's such a great kid. He just go, he's, there's a reason he's a goalie. But uh, most of them made it anyway, so we, we were pretty happy with practice anyway. So it was okay.
0: I was talking to one of your former players, and, and they said this is the day after uh, you guys won the championship and his career ended. He said, I threw away my running shoes and never was going to go running again. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. Well, we have, we have a funny situation right now. I have a young man on our team, a freshman on our team, whose dad was my first recruit at Princeton. Uh, Jack Tortellani here with us at Denver now and his dad, Justin Tortellani was on a first recruit and he was a Manhasset kid on Long Island. And, uh, you know, this thing goes full circle. And, uh, you know, so when I tell that story to people, some people say, well, take the hint, that means you're getting really old. So get the heck out. Or, you know, I look at it and say, wow, what a wonderful opportunity. I've had a few kids now where I've coached their dad and, and them. And, uh, you know, it's fun to see that the similar traits that, that Jack, and you know, has with his dad and his mom, who were both great athletes at Princeton. So um, there are unique, cool things that happen. And, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, we told him yesterday because we call it the Monday mile. Next week, we'll start the whole mile. <clears throat> but we told, I told him, I said, Jack, you just became more related to your dad than you ever were because I started this back in his freshman year at Princeton in 1988. So all those players, you know, they, I'm sure there's a ton of them with stories a lot worse than I just, I threw away my running shoes, uh, but uh, you know, they're all interconnected and uh, and that's one of the things that makes me most proud of still being around.
0: Yeah. Don't worry. That's not where the story ended. So uh, we'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep that between us, but, <laughs> but, but but I am wondering, you mentioned this coming full circle. What do you think's changed the most about your coaching style over the years?
1: I think that the key is not so much to to do it my way or it's the highway. It's more of the balance between keeping those old school, um, making young men sacrifice with with little things. Uh, it's maintaining those things. Just for instance, uh, you know, still in this day, uh, you know, I. Our guys still have to get haircuts. We don't allow facial hair. We wear shirts and ties on the road uh, when we travel, and we travel over 30,000 miles a year um, with our team. Every time we go on a trip, I have to have somebody who's not related to our team say something positive about one of our players or maybe a young man oh, helped an elderly woman with her luggage or it's just something little, maybe someone in a hotel saying that our guys were... Were the the nicest guys they've ever been around and things like that to just make you feel like um, <clears throat> even though it's it's old school make you feel like you're 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 helping young men take be be aware of the of what's going on around them. Uh, you know, one thing I always talk about is the five people I admire most in my life all have a similar trait, and then that is that they cannot or could not because a couple of them passed now could not walk past a piece of paper on the ground without picking it up. And and I think it's something very simple, but it, but it, it, it sends a good message message. And then as far as me changing goes, I think the one thing I've learned and thank God for David Metzbauer putting me up with (laughs) me for 20 years. And now Matt Brown putting up with me for 12 years is that um, I've learned to, to, uh, to give give away a little bit you know it it doesn't have to be my drill it doesn't have to be my way it doesn't have to be the way we did it you know 30 years ago um, when we won our first championship at at Princeton what you learn is that if your assistants and your players are happy uh if they're having a little fun if they're uh, uh as long as they're working hard and they see they see the light at the end of the tunnel uh, you don't have to be so myopic to to do things your way. When did
0: you learn that 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 you could allow those uh, assistant coaches to have a little bit more say in what they did?
1: Well, I think I I think I learned it out of necessity at Princeton with Metsy because there was only two of us. I mean, we had we had second assistant coaches back then, <clears throat> and we had a great person. You know, Bryce Chase was a volunteer coach at Princeton for like 50 years, but Bryce was an attorney, so he didn't come to. He didn't come to meetings or anything. And for 14 straight years, from 88 to 2002, before Sean Madeline came to me, um, we had our second assistants only lasted one year. Now, I don't know what that says about me, but but out of necessity, it was kind of, Metsy ran the offense, I ran the defense, and that was it. The good thing about us was we saw eye to eye in recruiting. Recruiting was pretty cut and dry for us at Princeton for a bunch of reasons number 1 there wasn't that many teams competing for championships and number 2 you had a finite group of young men who could get in could, could get into the place so um so i think i gave a lot of weight to Metsy, but it was out of necessity and we both saw things eye to eye i think it really came to fruition when i when i came here to denver and, and my son trevor was my my associate head coach for our first 5 years or 6 years and matt brown was only 25 26 years old and uh, and um, his way of doing of running the offense was so different. I had never coached a Canadian kid. Matt was Canadian. Um, you know, Trevor, Trevor and I did the defense, and he did the goalies. And, and it was really Trevor who's who's probably as a you know as my own son has probably given me more advice in my life than anybody else. He and my other son Brendan um, that uh, said you know. Dad, just just trust this guy, Matt Brown, and and so we have, and and slowly but surely over the last ten or eleven years, Matt has. When Trevor stepped away to Trevor stepped away to get his uh, master's degree in developmental psychology, and and so Brownie became our associate head coach, and I hired uh Well, first I hired Dylan Sheridan, who's my son-in-law, who's now uh, in Ohio with my daughter, Brian, and. Uh, Um, But then I hired John Orson and um, what I learned is that there it's not, I I saw a quote on Twitter one time when, when we gave up a bunch of goals and uh, somebody said, Tierney can't even coach his own defense anymore. You know, and it kind of went, you know, I don't, I don't listen to that stuff very much, but it's kind of like, Whoa, wait a minute. You know, I'm supposed to know what I'm talking about here. And uh, what I realized is, uh, you know, along with that, that idea of the drills and giving up some game planning and things like that is that there's so many different ways to skin this cat in a game of lacrosse that uh, it's, it's become, it became more fun for me, actually, Sean, you know, you know, I'd rather win it back all those years at Princeton, I'd rather win a game nine to seven. And, you know, now we'd rather win a game 1513, even though we had those great Hubbard, Hess and Massey teams, in in you know 96 97 98 that scored 15 16 goals a game um you know it's it's just uh kind of i've been able to change through my own introspection i guess is the word but uh just to say don't don't make yourself miserable trying to do everything the same way all the time let's you know when 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 we moved to denver people asked why why did you move out there and it was really a, a very selfish decision that thankfully my wife, Helen, who's been with me for 44 years, said, yeah, let's do it. It's a new adventure. And, uh, and I think that allowed me to kind of open up and say, Let, let's do this maybe in a different way.
0: I don't want to pick out something that's not there, but you mentioned a minute ago. Maybe it's just the introspection and you looking deep. Was that actually like a big process for you in understanding more about yourself and then the people you're surrounding
1: yourself with? Sure, sure, I think so. But I'm not a, I'm not a big reader, so I, it's not something that all of a sudden one day, you know, uh, something came through from a John Wooden book. I, I've, I've read Wooden's book and I, and I've read some other you know, books like that. I'm not a big quote guy, but I, but I have some quotes, you know, so it's kind of been back and forth. And uh, um, I think it's just the reality. Some as Brownie got more and more confident with um, the fact that I trusted him and became more and more confident that uh, in our second year, you know, due to his offense, we make the final four in our second year together um, with really a, a mishmash group of people with some great players you know uh, mark matthews was a heck of a player in camp flint and jeremy noble and those guys uh chase carrero you know all those great guys we had but um i think as matt got more and more confident it allowed me to to kind of open those doors and allowed me to say to him what do you want to do in practice today or you know what else do you think we should do or Why don't you take over the, the riding clearing game? You seem to have some good ideas with that. And honestly, Sean, it became a relief to me to not have everything, you know, every little mistake piled on, on a decision I might've made on Tuesday.
0: Yeah. It's pretty remarkable. The amount that trust opens up for other people's confidence. And I'd love to tackle that in a minute, but I would love to know for you, where'd you develop that self-confidence for yourself?
1: Well, I think, I think it goes back to, it goes back to, um, you know, my situations in, in, in coaching, uh, you know, um, when, when you first started this thing, when I met, moved from, from high school across on long Island to, uh, RIT in Rochester, I mean, I had an assistant coach, but he showed up at three o'clock and left at five, you know? And so I was washing the laundry lining fields. This is back in the early eighties when you did these things, doing all the recruiting. And so, um, you know, so I had to only trust me at that point. And, and, and we did pretty well. And then, but then when I went to Hopkins, um, what I realized as going from a head coach to an assistant coach back then under Don Zimmerman, Don Zimmerman, who's a phenomenal head coach, was that uh, I had to learn how to be a, a teammate in the coaching ranks because back then there were no limits on your staff. We had ten coaches on our Hopkins staff my first few years there. And uh, I had to learn from the other side. Hey, you know, and, and those days when Zim would say to me, what do you think, or who do you think we should put in, or what's your strategy for this defensive strategy for this game? Um, I learned that it, it made me feel so good. Like you said earlier, it made me feel like I was somewhat important in this, in this, program that had 100 years of history and all that, and all that other great stuff, I really wasn't that important in it. But the fact that he allowed me to be uh, somewhat important in that reminded me that when, then when I went to Princeton, that, um that, especially two years later, when I got Metsy, that, um you know, I knew what it felt like to be trusted. And when you know what it feels like to be trusted, it's much easier for you to entrust others uh, in the thing, including players, you know, at, at Hopkins, I, I had to be the uh, the head soccer coach. I didn't know anything about soccer. I had been a football coach on Long Island and uh, actually achieved my lifetime goal of being my high school's head football coach. And then left that after one year to go up to RIT. And, uh, but, um, when I got the job at Hopkins, it was, uh, they hadn't had, they had had one winning year in 50 years of soccer. So I figured that, you know, I if I can talk my way past Bob Scott, who you may remember the great old AD at Hopkins, if I can get my way past him, I'll work it out with the kids and the soccer kids there. Hopkins is a unique school in that it's a uh, division one only in lacrosse. It's division three in everything else. So all the kids we had on the soccer team were, uh, pre-med, engineers, really bright, bright kids. And I'll never forget, I got them in in the first meeting. And I said, listen, fellas, (laughs) I'm going to be clear with you guys. I don't know a thing about soccer. And I'm going to trust you guys to help me through that. Now, I'll recruit. I'll get us better players. I'll work your tails off. I will give great pregame speeches. I'll put us in position to win. But you got to help me along, too. And those kids... It was like uh, you know, it's like lifting a thousand pound weight off their shoulders because they had heard this guy who doesn't know anything about soccer is gonna be our coach. And so they grasped that and they went with that. And uh, the first year we were seven and nine, and then the next two years we were fourteen and three. And the third year we won our, we we made it to the NCAA tournament. And and uh, and that helped me a great deal, not only to learn to trust my coaches trust my players as well because in in lacrosse you have you play once a week it's kind of like football you jam everything down their throat during the week as we alluded to before and but still it's it's still free-flowing enough that you know even if they don't remember the play perfectly um it's it's up to them and their skills and their unique decisions that they make to be successful
0: yeah, trust is a pretty remarkable thing. It, it makes me think of something early in, in my business career. Uh, I had a manager. We were in a, an important meeting, a meeting I, I really didn't have the right to be in, and they asked him a very difficult question, and he posed it, and he said, you know what, I think Sean can, can answer this one better than I can. And just that little moment, I mean, I'm young 20s, and just having to, to stand up and talk in front of a room like that, uh, I think that forever changed my overall self-confidence, and then that allowed me to step up in so many other roles. So I, I love hearing these stories uh, with, the, with the sports analogies you became legendary essentially for being able to turn around programs. So did it all start with Hopkins soccer for you?
1: Oh, no, it was way before that. Um, you know, my first, uh, when I got out of college, I had a good friend, buddy, uh, who became a guy who became my good friend, buddy Krumenacker. Um, I had coached some junior high football and some junior high basketball, but buddy hired me to be his assistant coach, lacrosse coach at great neck South high school. And we were together for one year. And, uh, it wasn't a great year, but I learned a lot from Buddy about, uh, you know, how to be a head coach and things like that. And then he left to go be uh, the head football coach or an assistant football coach at his whole high school, Farmingdale High School, and the assistant lacrosse coach. At the time, you may remember, but the uh, people are kind of amazed at this, but the first NLL indoor league, the box league, was in 19... 19- you won't remember this, but people might, uh, 1974 and 75, and I was... I didn't, you know, I was lucky to be able to play in that. So uh, in 75, I didn't coach because I was playing pro lacrosse on Long Island. And uh, and so in 1976, the Great Neck South job opened again. And uh, they had been not very good for a lot of years. And in fact, um, my first year, we were four and 14. Then we were 14 and five or something like that. But my fourth year there... um, Great Neck South at the high schools, right off the Long Island Expressway, they used to, I don't know if they still do, but they used to put a plaque up under each sport's name on the wall of their gym. And it would have a wood, a carved wood, like in lacrosse. It might be a lacrosse stick, you know, and, or, you know, whatever, a football or soccer ball or whatever. and And to this day, in 1979, we won our league championship and lost really closely to uh uh, uh cold spring harbor ended up winning the, the county championship that year but um so i kind of got this blueprint for that and then we went on to uh then we went on to um levittown memorial which was my high school who had had a good lacrosse program but we were you know i had larry quinn as my goalie so we went uh 36 and 6 over the, over those two years and then and and then to uh, and then to RIT where Ray Rostan, who's my best friend and best man in my wedding, he was at RIT and had turned that around. But he went to Ithaca College, and I kind of, you know, got us picked up, you know, where he started, and got us to the NCAA tournament there. And then the Hopkins soccer. So you're right. I kind of made a, you know. A, up, up until Princeton, I never was in a job for more than three years. And so when I got to Princeton and, uh, and was offered the the Hopkins job in 1990, it would have been three years, but that's when I kind of felt like I had found a home. So I decided to stay and that three years lasted for 22. So, uh, yeah, so I guess I, I just, you know, and, and that resurrected itself when I came here to Denver, you know, I, I had, uh, I was better at turning programs around, and I, I guess I was for keeping them, although we had continued to do well at Princeton. I just felt like it was a new challenge, and uh, they had done okay here, but you know, we promised them a national championship, and we were able to get that in six years here. So uh, I guess I had some sort of blueprint or, or, or somebody looking down on me or a lot of luck to, uh, to uh, be able to turn these programs around.
0: Yeah, when when you took the job at Denver, uh, leaving Princeton, so I grew up just outside of Princeton. I mean, uh, your games every Saturday, that's what I was going to. And I was at Carolina at the time, but I mean, I got amped up. It's like, hell yeah, Coach Tierney, like taking on this new challenge, like greatest coach of all time. And you're like, no, I'm I'm not satisfied. I'm going to test my my boundaries and limits again. And that makes me think about something you mentioned a minute ago. You were talking about your lifetime goal was to become uh, your high school football coach. Once you accomplished that, what did your goals change to at that point?
1: I think it, by then, Sean, I, I had I had fallen in love with lacrosse. Uh, I didn't play lacrosse till I got to college at Cortland, and um, didn't become a half decent player until I played in that that pro league, and then beyond that. Um, and so, I, I, I had become passionate about lacrosse. Now, clearly, I wanted to be this head football coach, and um, planned on being there for a long, long time. And then when uh, when Ray Stan called me and said, I'm leaving RIT to go to Ithaca. Would you, would you be interested? It's kind of like, wow, we had just um, <clears throat> been in a county championship on Long Island in lacrosse at Levittown again with Larry Quinn. And uh, Ray had recruited a couple of my guys, Eddie Purcell and Tommy Sill to go up to RIT. So I just felt like um, at the time, you know, I can be here I lived in Levittown most of my life I can be here for the rest of my life and it was fine I loved what I was doing it was teaching and uh but what a cool challenge to be a college lacrosse coach and then uh it, it was actually just like the Denver job I didn't give it a lot of thought I just just went with it and uh and it was you know turned out to be uh to be a good move
0: Yeah it seems like you're you're able to trust your gut there You mentioned you kind of had this blueprint um, and I know that's kind of an overarching term. I'm wondering though, if you could complete this sentence, if I didn't do this every day of my coaching career, I wouldn't be nearly the coach I am today.
1: If I didn't remind myself that you're one loss away from being fired, you know, I think uh, there's, there's a, uh, uh, I won't, I, I, it's across my office, so I can't see it very well, but uh, there's a Bill Parcells quote that was in Sports Illustrated, and, uh, and basically what he says is that you wake up each day, and the only thing that matters is the next one. Hmm. And if you don't feel that way, you're on the other side of the thin line that that delineates between losers and winners. And, and I have always felt like coaches have had such great impact on my life. All I want to do, um, other than my family, all I want to do is continue to hopefully positively impact these young men so that they make more of themselves than maybe they would have had they not been a part of my life. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, just, just knowing the stories uh, from many of your players um, and then even just the impact, I, I never played for you. <laughs> just the amount of impact you had on me. Uh, it's pretty remarkable. So, so I've had many, a lot of
1: guys turn me down for Carolina, so that's okay. <laughs> I get it.
0: <laughs> well, you mentioned the the, the coaches and, and mentors who've had such an impact. Um, so I would love for you to talk about Freddie Smith and who he is and what type of impact he had on you.
1: Yeah, so, um, <clears throat> so when I got to Hopkins in, in August of 1987, I uh, didn't know much about Hopkins. In fact, going back to... Um, May of 87. I had just finished our, our, our last year at RIT. I knew I was going to Hopkins by then. And so I, uh, we, we had sold our house and so we moved down to, to Maryland in the summer. And, uh, um, I knew how to take this soccer thing on. So, uh, you know, whatever. But so I didn't get to coach with the coach with Zim too much in the fall, unless he had like a Sunday practice. And back then fall lacrosse isn't what it is now. It was more of getting the guys together, having a good, having fun, helping the freshmen get along, stuff like that. Um, So fast forward to uh, the end of soccer season and and Zim saying to me, hey, every Tuesday we go with Freddie to lunch down to the, uh, in Baltimore, it's, it's, I don't know if it's still there, but they called it the market. You know, it's kind of like the one in Philly, right? Just this, this craziness goes on at lunchtime. And so I said, I was like, oh, who's Freddie? You know, and, and he said, uh, you'll get to know. And so every Tuesday, Freddie would pick Zim and I up. We'd go down to the market. And uh, you know, it, it was it was crazy because we'd either have uh, we'd either have chicken livers or raw meat sandwiches with horseradish. Uh, I'm, I'm like uh, I'm like you know, I look back now and go, what was I thinking, you know, when I was thirty years old, who cared right or thirty five years old, and uh but Freddie Smith had such an impact on me he he took guys like Dave Petramala, John D. Tommaso, Steve Mitchell, all these guys that were tough guys, some of the greatest lacrosse players in. Across history, much less Hopkins' history, and he he just had this quiet way of 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 impacting these guys and demanding discipline of them and making sure that they did things in such a correct manner, uh, manner that I was just in awe of this man. And so my first two years at at, at Hopkins, I was actually. Entitled the first assistant, right? I was the one who was in the office. I was the one who helped him recruit, you know, and stuff like that. But in essence, Freddie, who was in his sixties at the time, um, was the defensive coordinator, and I just kind of learned and hung around with him and warmed up goalies and stuff. Well, by the time our our uh, third year came around, we had won the national championship in '85, fell short in '86 to to Carolina um, in the first final four at, at Delaware and then 87 came back and upset Maryland and upset Cornell to win the championship. But when Freddie had that, that fall, Freddie developed lung cancer. And so I became the defensive coordinator and, uh, you know, it was
2: pretty monumental
1: in my mind to, to get this thing done with all these great players and stuff. And, uh, um, and we ended up, you know, due to the help of, uh, you know Jerry Pfeiffer and, and Zim and all those other guys that were on it. We we end up um winning the national championship, but after the semifinal, Freddie was really sick. I mean, we drove him up. It was at uh, um, it was at Rutgers, and uh, after the semifinal, we had beaten Maryland, who had beaten us during the year, and they took Freddie home because it wasn't that far a ride, and and we called him up. And uh, the next day, and said, "Are you coming up for the championship?" And you know, the Hopkins Maryland rivalry is a pretty big one. So he said, "No, I've seen all I need to see." And then we we won uh, the championship the next day against Cornell. And called Freddie up, and and um, I remember going back home, and, and Zim Jim and I go to the hospital, and we give blood, and I you know, uh, for Fred try to help Freddie, and and he sees the the cotton you know Band-Aid on my arm, and he goes, you know. He was just such a good man. He was so thankful for every little thing you did, and yet taught me so much. and And I still say to this day, he taught me how more than anybody else in this game, and in all the years I've been a part of it. And then one final story. Actually, in '85, we were playing Syracuse in the national championship game, and uh, and it was that was before final fours, and it was up at Brown, and. Uh, Syracuse had a great team. They had, you know, Brad Cotts and all these great players. And, and uh um, and so I hadn't said much that year, but we had a we had a Crease Attackman that people were back then offenses were pretty simple. They would take the Crease attackman off the crease and they'd get the ball to him, his guy, and you know, and they would try to beat him because he was really great Crease attack. Crease, I'm sorry, Crease defenseman. And uh, and so so I, I kind of sheepishly raised my hand in this meeting as we're preparing for Syracuse. And everybody's looking like, oh, he's going to say something. And I said, uh, why don't we just, every time they take him out on the wing, why don't we just yell out zone and get into a fake zone? And then when he throws the ball, we'll go back to man to man. And everybody are looking at me like, you know, go back to sleep. You don't know what you're talking about. And uh, Freddie, that was, that was the first time we talked before about trust, right? Freddie, I'll never forget, stood up at the table and he said, uh, it's about time we start listening to this guy. Hmm. And 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 we did it. And it was uh it, it didn't win us the game. We won eleven to four. Uh, Syracuse was up like three nothing in the first five minutes, and I think we won eleven to four or eleven to five. But it was that trust that that allowed me to to, to move on and, and always worship Freddie. When when Freddie passed away, it was a tough tough time in my life. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing
0: those absolutely remarkable stories. Uh, I'm wondering about that moment where, where Freddie put that trust in you. Was that when you started to cultivate what later became the Princeton defense?
1: No, actually, it was uh, a little different where, where I, uh, well, you mean meeting with Freddie.
0: Uh, uh, I, uh, I guess just yeah, that.
1: So when, when, before I went to Princeton, when I was in high coaching high school across and coaching at RIT, we actually did this defense that was, if you if you could look historically in it was actually very much like the princeton defense but it was all the rules were the opposite <laughs> if if you can imagine so what we did what we did at rit was we drove everybody to the middle of the field which is kind of dangerous and i didn't know what i was talking about at the time but as soon as you saw that guy's back we had a call where the guy covering the ball he would turn him to the inside of the field But as soon as the guy behind him saw that guy's back, he would get his stick in front of him and try to turn him back. And we would double team from behind and circulate the defense into it. Well, then I get to Hopkins and I got this Freddie Smith, who's just a phenomenal man. And he starts telling me about kind of look, it wasn't as, as intricate as the Princeton defense, I guess you'd say, but. Look, if you, it's pretty simple. If you, if you keep a guy from, away from the middle of the field as he, as he goes down the alley, his angle decreases. Because at Hopkins, we didn't slide very much. We had such great players. We would slide if we needed to. And then he had this thing where if the attackman had it, he would, um, we called it Delaware, meant don't slide. And the other one was a coma, which was a come across the crease slide, which we all, you know, people know about. And that was kind of it. But that... When I got to when I got to Princeton, my first two years, the mistake I made there then was when we went two and thirteen and six and eight was um, I tried to do the things that Hopkins was doing, and we didn't have the talent to do it. So then I I kind of got a uh, uh, you know I went back in my history because I had I had talked to Zim a little bit about that in my last year at Hopkins about this idea of using Freddie style defense but sliding early going quickly. And you know we didn't need to do it. He didn't really believe it was a great idea, so um and we he was right we didn't we didn't need to do it, but i so my first two years at Princeton, we tried to do what we did at Hopkins. We couldn't do it, so I said to myself, we gotta do something different this This is crazy." And so what I did was I went back in my memory and thought about this idea of double teaming guys from behind and rotating in. but keeping in mind the lessons Freddie had taught me about. Bad angles and pushing people down the side and stuff. And so we kind of combined those two things. So we started out with, you know, turning our hips and driving guys down that down the side and then sliding early, pushing out adjacent, making teams rotate the ball if they wanted to do it quickly. And, uh, you know, probably the biggest mistake I ever made in my life in front of 2,000 coaches at the convention was in 1997. I, I gave it all away. And and I'll never forget Mike Messier, the great coach from West Genesee in New York, said said to me at the end of it, he goes, What'd you do that for? You know, you shouldn't have told him. <laughs> and he was probably right. But uh hence the, you know, the you know, and it's it's gone, kinda of gone away, although I did allude to that funny story not too long ago where the guy on Twitter said he can't even coach his own defense anymore. So that's uh, we've had to adjust, we make changes and what i always tell people in lacrosse i'm sure it's in business too is you know if you think you have a new idea try to enjoy it but it probably was a new idea 30 years ago and then if you think you have an old idea and it's getting tired put it in your memory bank because it'll be new 30 years from now you know and and it's kind of like i always say it's kind of like fashion right Hold on to your Chuck Taylors because they're going to come back in, in vogue someday, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's some tremendous advice right there. I, I am wondering how you aligned kind of taking all of these different practices, principles, uh, tactics, and strategies from other coaches you were part of and meshed them with who you are a, as an individual. When do you feel like you really hit your stride there?
1: I, I, think, I think it was um, sometimes like everything in life. Sometimes it's out of necessity. Uh, you know the uh, the quote i've been using a lot even though young people like yourself won't know who this is but there's a you want to google Yogi Berra he has some of the greatest say- sayings ever and one of and i've been using this a lot to young coaches who have been asking my advice and it was uh, when you come to a fork in the road take it
2: and then what i meant
1: by that is changing jobs but also changing strategies listening to the matt browns and david Metzbauers of the world and 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 saying you know um you got to do this but also by necessity you know when uh at at, at great neck south all the way back to the mid 70s we weren't very good but we put in his own defense and and we we worked on simple things that 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 could help you know a group of kind of 13 kids beat um, and Hassett one time and Cold Spring Harbor one time. And, and, and so, um, I think, uh, out of necessity of the, the soccer at Hopkins, necessity of, um, you know, being outmanned, certainly the national championship in our first one in 1992, it was one that nobody could have predicted. And, and it was our first final four and, uh, they beat Hopkins in the semifinals. And we, um, we beat uh, Carolina actually in the semifinals in a crazy game because we were basically holding the ball back then and we, we couldn't do it against Carolina. And, but thankfully, uh, we scored. We outscored them 16 to 14. It was 110 degrees on, on the field at Franklin Field. And so the next day, when you practice on Sunday, I remember walking out on the field, it was still hot. Nobody wanted to practice. We walked out on the field and uh, um, my friend Rick Beardsley, who I like a lot now, we we laugh about this because he won his championships and he was a great great player. He was laying in the middle of the field getting a suntan when our team was walking out for practice. And I said, you know, maybe we have a chance at this. And so we started out, and and we were actually went up seven to nothing on Syracuse. In the, it, and that was, and they scored two goals in the last couple of minutes of the half. We were up seven to two at halftime, and I can tell you, the looks in the eyes of our guys was one of bewilderment and surprise, you know? And so they came back, of course, and when we won it in that great Andy Mo goal in the third overtime or second overtime at Franklin field. But, um, once you get something like that happened to you, uh, and then four of the six championships at at Princeton were all overtime wins. You kind of get this feeling that, uh, um, you're blessed. Number one, you're supported so much by the people around you. Number two, but also, uh, maybe you know a thing or two yeah can you hit
0: more on that I think that's one of those important moments where you were saying no one could have predicted this but then all of a sudden you start to realize you know what I I might be pretty good at this
1: yeah and I've never tried to believe that you know I'm always doubting myself I, I really believe that there's when you when you look back on this stuff and people say things nice about you you say you kind of say well why me you know I'm nothing special I you know I'm not not very smart. I'm not, uh, you know. I'm blessed. I, I mean, I have great faith, and and I think that's helped me through a lot. But um, just a quick story. Back in 2002, when I was inducted into the uh, Lacrosse Hall of Fame, I had i had come across a quote that I that I kind of thought was pretty cool. I was trying to think of what I was going to say, and the quote was, "Judge judge your success by what you had to give up in order to achieve it." And I changed one word in it and, and I, I I put made it judge your success by what others had to do in order for you to achieve it hmm. and, and I think when you think of your family and and, and your wife and your children when you you're a coach you know our volunteer coach Eric Adamson you know we were talking yesterday about this I'm you know, giving them marital advice like before you get into this make sure that she understands this is not your normal profession when you lose a lacrosse game it's like for my wife Helen gives me forty eight hours and at forty eight hours she said, all right, stop being a baby let's go we got a game we got another game coming up you know, and so're supported by family you're supported by the people you're working for you're supported by uh, your players that will do anything for you. I remember Kevin Lowe, the great attackman, uh, somebody asked him what's it like to play for this wild man and He's always yelling at the refs and stuff. And Kevin said, he does that for us. Mm-hmm. You know, and and when you when you feel like a kid gets that, then you feel like um maybe you're doing something the right way, or at least, or at least the, the way you're coaching that group of young men is resonating with them to a point. Now they may be out on Saturday night, you know, laughing, laughing at you. Um I remember when I recruited Trevor back then in in he was in a class of 2001. So he was a high school 97. And back then, you know, we recruited seniors, right? I mean, it was the summer, you got a top 205. And then you see the guys and you call them up about five times, you bring them in for a visit, and then they decide where they're going to go, right? That's how it was. And uh, we used to use this phone in my house that was Princeton paid for it. So I didn't use the phone at all, but only to make recruiting calls. So one night, the phone rings. And I go, nobody has this number. What is this? And, and, uh, so I said, hello. And then it's, it's not like today of all these spam calls and everything, you know, it's usually a wrong number. So I go, hello. And he goes, uh, is this coach Tierney? And I go, yeah. And I, he go, I said, who's this? And he goes, it's Trevor Tierney. And I go, Trevor, what are you doing? <laughs> like, you don't call this phone. And he goes, uh, you know, I'm downstairs and, 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 uh, I wanted to let you know I want to come to Princeton. And it was Mm -hmm. so cool. You know, such a great, I I still got to get the chills over it. It's such a cool moment. But then I quickly regrouped myself and said, okay, I got one question for you. You come to Princeton. You're out on a Saturday night with the boys. And somebody says, your father's an asshole. What are you going to say? I'm leaving another word out. (laughs) I don't even know if you can use that word. He said, uh, within seconds he said i 'm going to say i 've lived with that asshole for eighteen years' and you're absolutely correct <laughs> and so and i knew he was I knew he was ready you know i knew I, I knew he could handle it you know so um, so I, I think with all these things, all these experiences you just you just you know i I, I pray to be humble i I quickly try to um, I have a saying that coaches lose games and players win them so there's never been a day where i felt like uh you know oh my impact on this made us win no the players played great uh, i i feel like my assistant coaches have won games you know um i feel like in our quarterfinal in in 2011 when uh matt brown came up with an amazing game plan for we playing hopkins at hopster in the quarterfinals and maybe one of the best games we ever played here um, just came up with a game plan. It was phenomenal. I think he won that game, but but even he would say because he's very he feels the same as I do that no of the kids played great. Cam Flint had five goals or you know whatever whatever it might have been. And, uh, so I think as long as you can stay humble and, and remember that you know you're you're this close from being on that other side. Uh, I always tell people about my last high school coaching experience. I was coaching a girls' varsity basketball team at Levittown before I went up to RIT in January, and uh, we pulled up to Westbury High School, and and we get out of the bus, and uh, we scored the first basket, and I'm like, all right, you know, and they pressed us from that point on till we got back on the bus. We scored the first basket and the last basket, and lost 72 to four. Get out. So, And so I remember how quickly, uh, you know, you can be humbled uh, and and it can happen. It can happen at any time. So I try my best to uh, let the kids enjoy the victories and let the coaches suffer with the, with the failures.
0: Coach, I I absolutely love these stories. Uh, I know we're going to wrap up here in a few minutes. Uh, I do want to hit on though. I mean, getting to the top is almost impossible. Staying there is even harder. And I'm just curious how you were able to do that to continue to stay on top, to win those championships when you have college age players that are returning and keeping their egos in check.
1: The key is what I said before, Sean, is is those, those other ones don't matter. It's all, because what you have to remember is when you walk away into the sunset, people can, can talk about your seven championships or whatever. You know, I, I played on a national championship team when I was a senior in college. It was, at Cortland's division three, I've, I've, you know, I was on an indoor championship. I, I was able to coach the world championships and all those things I'm, I'm very proud of. But that's for the future. That's for, that's for others to talk about. Because if I rode on that experience, um, then the kids I'm coaching today would be cheated. Because that's not their experience. Their experience is right now, and if you say to yourself, well, I've won seven, you know, we don't need to work hard in the office today. Um, you know, we've won seven, or Matt Brown's won one, and, um, and he's won four Minto championships, which are the most important thing to, to young uh, Canadian kids. Um, let's just take the day off. Let's, let's not put into this what we put into it to win those championships. You're cheating those kids. And they came, some of them come because of that hope that they can be a part of something like that. And so I I could never go to sleep thinking that I didn't give the kids 100 percent of my effort. And look, it's harder. It's hard to win national championships. Like you said, there's great coaches out there. There's so many great players. There's amazing schools. And it's, you know, it's not just five or six schools winning them anymore. But um, if you don't give it that that effort, then then. You should walk off to the sunset. I always, people say like, why why do you keep doing this? And I say, I'll always have a rule. And it's two days that I, two days in the year that I mark myself. Number one is the day the freshmen come in. Do I get excited about that and seeing their families and promising them about an experience? And then the first game, the first day, game of the season, do I still have those butterflies? Do I still have those juices flowing? And if those two, the answer to those two questions are yes then i feel like we're doing our job and i have my days we all have our our lazy days or whatever but i'm surround i surround myself with people that won't accept that and especially matt brown who will not accept a lazy day and so that's what keeps me going as well
0: i love it that day one mentality yeah you, you've been a, a tremendous cultivator of talent throughout your years uh, so surrounding yourself with those people for your down days uh, is certainly going to be helpful if you were starting out again today uh, as a coach, are there things you wish you had spent more time on earlier?
1: Um, you know, I, I think I've been a, uh, a kind of a team planning guy. I think that that comes, I think, with one thing I really, as as I went through this career of trying to be a football coach, you know, in football, you make a coaching decision every 15 seconds, you know, especially an offensive coordinator or a defensive coordinator, right? So you're it's in your hands. It's bang. We're going to run a play. We're going to throw a pass. We're going to run a sweep. We're going to kick punt the ball. We're going to whatever. And, and I think if I, I tried to coach um, across that way, still try to coach it that way. But now with Brownie and, 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 and and Metsy, we were allowed to kind of, as I said earlier, prepare, we're more of a preparation coaches now than, than game day coaches because um if you prepare them right they're gonna they're gonna take the game day and run with it you still call your timeouts and all that other stuff but um uh, so i think that that's that's been the change i wish i had gotten to a little bit earlier with um concentrating on you know this covid thing has demanded that we concentrate um more on individual skills we did five weeks of 10-person cohorts And I've never seen improvement in young men individually like I have here at Denver in the last five or six weeks. Now we're able to go to 25 persons, so we can do a little bit of half field, six on six. But I I tell you, if I had to do it all over again in college, I would do what we did this year, which is spend three, four, five weeks in small groups doing individual work. And and I think it's going to pay off in the end.
0: That's that's incredible. All these years, and it comes down to, to something you're learning in these past few months. I love absolutely. that, absolutely, Coach. I, I've got three quick ones. I, I, I've literally been dying my whole life to ask you these questions. So, uh, what's <laughs> the greatest play you've ever seen on the field?
1: The greatest what play? Well, wow, as you as you know, I've been uh, you know uh, I've been blessed, but I think when you talk greatest, you can talk about greatest with the impact on a result, which would certainly be some of those you know, those overtime goals by Kevin Lowe, Jesse Hubbard, uh, you know, uh, BJ Prager, you know, all those guys. And then, um, and certainly, uh, the, uh, you know, Westberg in the semifinals against Notre Dame. So those were great in that they were result oriented. When, when you talk about just great, great plays, um, maybe cause it's fresh and fresh in my memory, but, but, uh, Um, you know, we lost this game to Loyola in the quarterfinals, and Mark Matthews made a, to to put us within one, Mark Matthews made a catch, you know, somebody chucked the ball down to him, made a one-hand catch, turned and stuck the ball from about 18 yards. It was pretty, I'm trying to think if there was anything uh, that was close to that, and I'm sure there were, but, um, you know, that, that one sticks out, but there are memorable plays like uh you know the the greatest one in my mind was um again selfishly and family wise was we're losing to virginia in front of forty thousand people in in 2000 in the in a in the semifinals and bj had gotten hurt that year so my son brendan was starting on attack and uh people were just relentless behind me like, oh, your son's only playing because he's your son and your son's small and slow and he stinks and all this stuff and uh and Brendan ended up scoring the winning goal against Virginia. And and I can tell you, um my youngest daughter Brian took it into her own hands to turn around in the stands and start screaming at him and tell him uh, <laughs> telling them that uh that was her brother and he was pretty good now, wasn't he? And stuff like that. So uh you know from a personal great play. You know all those great saves that Trevor made. You know the the one against Syracuse that was in Sports Illustrated. All those things are, um, were were just phenomenal memories. But that that play that Mark Matthews made, um, that'll never leave. That was just a phenomenal play. And we lost the game. (laughs) Interestingly enough. yeah, that Mark
0: Matthews play. I rewinded that thing ten times right when that happened. I just, I couldn't believe what he just did. Uh, it was incredible. And it's funny you mentioned Trevor save against Syracuse with nine seconds left. I was watching the highlights of that before this call. Uh, I was just reliving it. And the, the play I I relived with my best friend growing up the most in our backyard was Ryan Boyle to BJ Prager to win it in overtime. So so these <laughs> right. are all lasting impressions. So this is too cool for me. Uh, you actually answered the most memorable moment there with huh. with Brendan uh, to to win the game. Final one though. If you could sit down with anyone dead or alive, not a family member or friend, that you could just spend the interview uh the evening have an interview like this, who would it be?
1: Go well I, you know look you know I, I the risk of 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 getting spiritual certainly jesus I think i've had that uh, the importance in my life and his and his blessed mother, who I give great prayer to, but if you, we went back in time and, and talked to um you know, somebody here, I think it would be, you know, my, my, my dad died when I was 23 years old and never really got a chance to, to, I got that last year, a chance to find out a lot about him. My dad was, people have heard this story before, but he was a beer truck driver. And yet he said things when I was young that I kind of brushed off. And then I realized when I was old, older, that, that they were very poignant. And so I, I, you know, uh, so I, I would love to, revisit w- with dad but um you know I've had the blessing of of becoming friends with guys like Bill Belichick who every time I talk to him he, he uh he just just blows me away as as a friend and, and just uh people don't know that guy so um there's just uh you know a bunch of people that uh that happened through my life that um that that you know I'd, lo- I'd love to just spend a little a little time with but this it's a great question, but um, it's also one that I know from a personal standpoint, I wouldn't be where I am I am without the blessings from above, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, you get to spend a little bit of time with those people. Uh, we can learn a great deal. That's, that's largely what this show is for, and that's why I feel so fortunate. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll toot your horn again. Once again, I, I think you're the greatest coach of all time. The amount of impact you've had on me uh, that you would never even know about. Uh, and helping me become just a man, a father, um, has been pretty tremendous. Uh, and then being around your kids, seeing how you developed them into people. Uh, it's pretty remarkable. So coach Bill Tierney, this was just such an honor for me. So thank you for joining us on what got you there.
1: Thank you, Sean. It's been, it's been my honor.
0: You guys made it to the end of another episode of what got you there. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through